Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the US and China continue to make gradual progress on a phase one trade deal, although we have not yet seen anything on paper. To get the latest, we welcome Ann Stevenson Yang, co-founder and research director of J Capital Research, also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor uh, based in DC and Hong Kong. And thanks so much for joining us. What do you, from your perspective, what is the latest on the China-US trade negotiation? Hi, um, you know, <laughs> It, it, to be honest, it's nonsense. So we have we have almost two years of back and forth market gyrations and you know high expectations in order to get back to the status quo ante. Like, what's special about this? All right. Well, okay. This is an argument that people say we're going back to 2017 levels. That said, the 40 billion dollars to 50 billion dollars of extra uh, goods and that. China is supposed to import from the United States. There is a question of how feasible that is, given the structure currently uh, of their economy and the different trade uh, routes. What's your sense of that? Do you think that that seems uh, very doable at this point? Yeah, this reminds me of, you know, for many years, the, the Chinese trade ministry has been has been running these um, these buying missions to the U.S., where they'll send a whole lot of, you know, SOE uh, presidents uh, on a delegation with the Ministry of Commerce, and they'll say they'll sign all these agreements, and China's going to buy all this stuff, and China's going to invest all this money. It never actually happens. It's it's for the headline effect. So what China is going to do is they're going to kind of um, slice away at at the commitments by uh, you know re renaming Hong Kong uh, imports as as mainland imports. And then, uh, you know, signing a deal that they don't actually implement, you know, stuff like that. So what's happened is that the, um, all the structural demands for, for Chinese uh, economic change have just disappeared because the U.S. realized that they're, they're not realistic and the U.S. really has sort of, you know, caved in order to get a deal. And instead, the U.S. says, OK, just buy more stuff, please. And China says, yeah, we might do that. So, and does this call into question the value of kind of this bilateral type of negotiation as opposed to, you know, what probably was more the norm of, of a multilateral, maybe that, you know, Trans-Pacific Partnership? From your perspective, all the history that you have with China and China trade, what do you think is the best way to proceed with China? Yeah, yeah. Look, it's totally understandable why there's great frustration with China, but uh, but the fact is that the real problem has been lack of use of the of the dispute rec uh, resolution mechanisms that exist in the WTO, uh, lack of accession to the TPP, and so forth. There's a lot of stuff that we could be doing and demands we could be making of China that we have not made, and we've hobbled the WTO. And yes, I agree, the bilateral mechanisms are just not very satisfactory. Going forward, what are you looking for to determine whether the phase one deal is moving ahead as expected in terms of phase 1A, phase 1B, phase 1C that actually effectuates the, the existing tariffs being rolled back? Well, it, it, it seems to me that the only real demand, um, because all the concessions on, on, you know, stuff like intellectual property have already been baked into, into Chinese, um, you know, new laws and, and resolutions, and the currency thing kind of 
that was that became unimportant about ten years ago. Um, so, so the only significant issue here is whether China will actually make uh, the purchases that it says it will, and most of those purchases are focused on soybeans and corn, ethanol, right? Uh, so, and, and that's very important, obviously, to Trump because uh, they're, they're, they're base constituencies that uh, rely on selling those commodities. So, so then it becomes a question of, well, China, does China really want to boost the Trump chances of re-election? Um, there have been signs that it did for a long time. Now it's not so clear. So as we look back on this process, and we're not even done the process yet because yet we've not even seen anything on paper, but assume the phase one deal turns out the way it's been reported. Looking back, will this, will this outcome, this phase one deal, be worth two years of all this uncertainty in the global markets? Yeah, totally not. Now, did, did there need to be a reset of the U.S.-China relationship? Absolutely. But I think that a lot of that reset is about uh, no longer – um, capitulating to to unreasonable Chinese, you know, actually bullying over things like you know the name that we call Taiwan and whether Liu Xiaobo gets a Nobel Prize and and stuff like that. Um, so we need to stop being cowed by that sort of thing. But this, you know, weaving back and forth on tariff levels is really just not a good thing for either economy. Ann Stevenson-Yang, thank you so much for being with us. Ann Stevenson-Yang is co-founder and research director at J Capital Research, as well as a Bloomberg Opinion uh, contributor. There are a number of ways to sort of size and scope the FANG stocks, or as I called them earlier, FANMAG, which is Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft, uh, Apple, and Google. Wow. Um, well, I mean, that's sort of the, the sort of guts of, <laughs> okay. the, of the tech sector. I think you just, is that yours? It, I, I remember discussing it All with right. some I colleagues. Like I don't want to take full right. credit uh, um, about no, this, but I think that it's important to, to look at the performance of the FanMag stocks, uh, aside from the rest of the S&P, to understand the rally and understand going forward how big a bet you're making on big tech in the U.S. if you invest in the index. Nick Colas joining us here, co-founder of Datatrek Research, LLC, uh, here in our interactive broker studios. Can you give us some, some sense of how responsible this sector has been for the overall U.S. equity performance? Yeah, it's been sizable, obviously. If you look at the past five years, you can even point to single names like Amazon that hasn't done all this all that well this year, but over the last five years, it's something like 7% of the entire S&P's return, uh, even though it's obviously was coming from a small base. Uh, and XLK, the ETF that follows it, is now up 30-plus percent for the year. If you look at sector weightings, it's even more impressive, 23% for tech. If you add in Google, Facebook, and Amazon that aren't in tech, you're talking about 32% percent of the S&P. And that gives people pause, but I would point to two things. The first is there is no European or EFA tech sector to speak of. It's 7% of EFA. So the weighting that you see in the S&P isn't just for the U.S. economy. It's for U.S. and Europe and Japan and parts of emerging markets. So you're looking at a global franchise. And the second issue is, unlike a lot of other sectors, tech is not a stranded asset. If you think about the energy sector, which I think by most accounts is verging on stranded asset territory, it's now smaller than Apple's market cap or Microsoft's market cap in the S&P 500. And so you have a combination of things. A, it's a growth sector. B, it's not a stranded asset, and it probably will never be. 
So we talk about the fangs and tech you know, really dominating the market, but that raises a concern of breadth when we think about the, the, the lack of breadth of the market in this move up we've had. Is that a real concern, do you think, to professional investors? It certainly is to professional investors, the, the, and certainly to our clients. We, we get a lot of emails about this. The way we try to explain it is basically a, a permutation of what I just discussed is, look, this is the sector that is growing. If you want to put, if you had to lock your money up for 10 years, would you rather be in tech or in any other sector of the S&P? Although there's a question of which tech, right? I mean, yes, some of these big giants, particularly Amazon, has had an amazing run of it. Uh, Facebook certainly as well. The new tech might be different. It might be cybersecurity. It might be, you know, cloud computing, and, and there will be a breakdown of the haves and the have-nots within the tech sector. Netflix uh, may be subsumed by another company based on the increasing competition in streaming. So how do you sort of understand the lasting quality of, of, of tech that's offered by these companies? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I would say two points. The first is, you know, if you think about the big four, the big five, or, or your fan mag uh, paradigm, they don't really compete with each other very much. That's very unlike the Chinese tech sector, where you have social media companies actively pushing into e-commerce, and e-commerce companies building social networks. We don't have any of that in the States. The giants stick to themselves, and that's kind of bad for competition in the U.S., but awesome for stock returns, and it probably won't change. The second is, if you think about Amazon, on. What is Amazon right now? It's a cloud computing company. What does it want to be? It wants to be a cloud computing e-tailer of AI solutions. That's what it's really focused on. That's what recognition, facial recognition is about. That's what it wants to be. So if these companies do it right, they should also be the next leg. When you say that there isn't a lot of competition, there's these like alarm bells that go off in my head, regulatory risk, regulatory risk. I mean, that's sort of the big concern here is that there aren't major competitors for any of these tech giants. How big of a potential headwind are regulatory concerns given the fact that so far, it does not seem like there is much motion on that. A lot of talk, not a lot of action. The most motion has been, you know, California AB5, which is the privacy rule, which goes into effect on January 1st and is going to basically be the de facto U.S. standard, but the Senate is still working on regulation. The bottom line to, your, to answer your question is it really kind of depends on the 2020 elections. And it depends on how much traction the privacy aspects of this gets. That's the only thing that really people care about. Otherwise, people, I think, are pretty happy with the way technology interfaces with their life, except for privacy. Uh, that needs to get resolved. But barring that, regulations should not be that big a deal. And, and from a shareholder perspective, hopefully they're not because the system works really well for shareholders right now. So as we think about 2020 coming off a very strong 2019, even if it would take a look at it from the peak of 2018, still a real strong period. What do you think investors should be expecting for returns in 2020? I've heard either boy, low to mid single digits after the big run we've had, or I've had somebody, we've had some people come in and say, gee, the data kind of shows after a big double digit year, you're going to get another double digit year. How, do you, how are you thinking about it? We're very data focused on that. We've done the same math and, and I'd say I have two observations. The first is it's very uncommon for the S&P to hover around uh, zero to 5% up or down in the following year. In any year, it's like a 13% out of the last 91 years. So it's not very common. So I wouldn't put a lot of money on the idea that you're not going to move very far. I do agree that you're probably going to get something slightly below long-term average, 9 to 10%. That is prefaced on some earnings growth, probably not as high as the street's looking for, call it 3 to 5%, and a Fed that you know is true to their sort of dovish slanting word that they're not going to raise rates unless inflation gets really out of control, and that'll keep the 10-year low, and global growth is slow, so we shouldn't have much of a, of a rally in yields. That's the recipe for a decent but not great year. 
What would you say to people who argue that big tech has just taken the growth from the other sectors like, say, retail uh, that's gotten kind of clobbered by Amazon's rise? I mean, is that sort of what's going on here? It's a piece of it, and I'd say it's more of a feature than a bug as far as uh, as far as stocks go, uh, because you have uh, sectors that competed like retail in fairly inefficient forms and didn't really adapt. And over time, those should not receive capital because they're not innovating, and the companies that are do receive the capital and do receive uh, the valuations that allow them to continue to grow. So I'd say it's a positive, but I get it. It's a painful positive if you happen to own retailers or other disrupted sectors or energy for that matter. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us again. Nicholas is co-founder of Data Trek Research based in New York City. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nick is also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. We always love getting his thoughts on so the good. market. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, this to me is such an interesting issue because people say, well, if you strip out the big tech from the S&P performance, it's really unimpressive or even a loss. And, and to say, you know, this is a potential problem for the market, right? That there's weakness elsewhere. And is it a problem or is it, you know, one of the strengths of the market, frankly? Because if these companies continue to innovate or if they continue to uh, make as much money, then it will be something that can drive things forward. But it is sort of one of the existential questions facing the market in 2020. Today is a great day to get an informed perspective on what is going on with the pound. We see a a big drop today, the biggest, I believe, since July, uh, as we hear Boris Johnson raise the specter, essentially, of a hard Brexit if there isn't some sort of trade agreement created with the European Union, a la what they did with Canada, uh, but in uh, approximately six years uh, fewer time. Joining us now, Marcus Ashworth, uh, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. And I'm wondering, Marcus, uh, is your take here that markets are overreacting to something that Boris Johnson said uh, with respect to basically raising the specter of a hard Brexit again? Or do you think that this is real uncertainty that the markets have been uh, overly sanguine about in their post-election enthusiasm? Hi, uh, hi Lisa. Very much the former. I mean, this is a gift for next year. I mean, uh, it's very difficult to get uh, on board ahead of uh, in, in liquid markets uh, before the new year. But let's face it, the most stable government in the Western world, now we have a very clear majority under Boris Johnson, um, a very undervalued, very, very undervalued stock market. It's it's dramatically underperformed Europe, US, etc. This year, um, yes, there's some, some wibbly wobbly about uh, whether a deal is going to be done. I think a, a no deal Brexit, which everyone in the media seems to go on and on and on about, has been clearly ruled out by the fact guilty, that Boris Johnson... Guilty, by the way. Guilty is you know, charged. Well, but go on. Well, well, along with the, the, the rest of most of the mineral media. But the reality is, is that Boris Johnson got that sorted in very short order. He's just serving notice to both uh, his, his party and indeed uh, it's more of a domestic signal, but equally to the European negotiators that let's get on with this. Stop coming up with excuses why it should be seven years or ten years. That shows you how rubbish the EU are at negotiating things. Let's do something. We both stand at one with each other. We want to diverge by X on this and Y on the other. Let's just get on with it. Stop coming up with excuses and uh, let's make everything better for everyone else. And I think that he has the uh, backing and the confidence from, from the European leaders, which his predecessors did not have. So, bloody blah, blah, blah. Sterling has uh, come down to a level which is 
uh, I think, fairly priced, if not cheap, under pretty much every uh, monitor. So as far as I'm concerned, do I think sterling will be higher in a year's time? Absolutely. Do I think the stock market in the UK will be higher? Absolutely. It might have some wibbly wobblies, of course, but I think it's it's one of the gifts of 2020. All right. So, Marcus, 2020 is also going to be the time period where uh, the UK and the EU and the US are going to have to get down to hard work about uh, bilateral trade deals. What do you think the market's discounting as it relates to those uh, negotiations? Well, it's funny you should say that because that's exactly the way I think. I think it's a three-way deal that's going to be done, and it needs to be done that way. If we have intelligence to link in the fact that the EU and the US absolutely needs a deal and vice versa to each other, why not try and do one big happy deal? Now, I know that's that's in the land of fantasy, but that's where we ought to be go heading towards. And I think there's certainly coordination much more now between the UK and the US. And it's whether the EU can get over itself and work out what, with a massively declining manufacturing sector in Germany and the France in, in, on riots and a variety of other problems with governments across Europe that they could do with uh, a big, nice, lovely, fat trade deal to keep everyone happy in 2020. So I, I'm going to be optimistic and think it can be done. And I think uh, we've seen that that uh, <laughs> whether Donald Trump caved in or the Chinese caved in, I'm not getting to the semantics of that, but certainly it's the first part of a trade deal has been done. There are, is a way forward in 2020. It was a very big year out, outside UK equities. I think 2020 can still be okay, if not better than okay, if um, the world's governments uh, get over themselves. So you said that uh, you think that UK assets are dramatically undervalued heading into 2020 and that this is a gift uh, for people who can bet on uh, some of the stocks and, and bonds and housing and, and, and anything else. I'm wondering how the economy factors in because we are looking at a potential contraction in the UK economy for the fourth quarter. I I, th- I think it's noise with its contract. I don't think it will contract, but let's just say it does. It doesn't mean anything. Um, there's a massive fiscal spending uh, splurge coming. I still think, if you, if you read what I write, that the, the, probably the next cut, uh, next move in the Bank of England should be a cut, but it'll be an insurance cut like the Fed's done three already. There'll be a hockey stick swoosh um, coming when the, that fiscal spending kicks in and a bit of a Brexit bounce and all that sort of stuff. But I think the Bank of England will try the, to resist cutting, but if they need to, let's cut 50, 25 basis points. doesn't really matter. The point is is that uh, the economy is very soft because that is why Boris Johnson won, because the economy was absolutely going into into an into a absolute channel of, of doom because of this extended Brexit nightmare, which he's about to get us out of. Whether you agree with it or not, it's just what's happening. It's democratically put forward. The EU itself needs to realise the fact that its uh, second, third largest member is leaving. The fifth largest economy in the world is leaving it. And it needs to shapeshift and get over itself and make a deal. And I think that can be done, politics aside, uh, by the end of the year. It may not be the full deal. I think that's where the fudge comes. We're seeing this with the US-China trade deal. A nice little phase one deal by this time next year. And then we have phase two, which fills in all the gaps. That's that's the direction of travel. And I think the markets will, will probably see through that over the course of the year, see through the politics, and, and uh, all things being equal, it, it should be better for the Europe uh, stock markets and better for the UK and, and hopefully better for the US as well. So, Marcus, just give us a, just some color as to how this will actually proceed over the next days, weeks, months, the negotiations, if any, uh, in terms of ratifying this Brexit deal between the UK and the EU. What are the actual steps in timing? Well, we have um, 
the withdrawal agreement bill, the WAB, if you want to call it, uh, coming through first steps or second steps technically, um, right here, right now, in the next couple of days. That'll be formally ratified um, a bit later in, in January, and then we're out of the European Union from the uh, by the end of January 31st. Then we go into this period of negotiating the tra- in the transition period, which the EU classic EU are trying to limit in June, J- July. You can't, you know, you must tell us we can extend by this period. All this will be washed away, I'm, I'm sure of it, because it's it's just roadblocks that they're putting there to try and help their own procrastination, which which suits their, their side, but they don't really want to face up the reality of the fact, as I said, fifth largest economy in the world is, is exiting um, their single market, but it needs to be done in an elegant way for everyone, for either side. All the important stuff like aircraft flying and pharmaceutical licensing can be done in, in a heartbeat, it's already there. Um, it's it's a bit more emotive on certain things, on certain tariffs, and of course, financial services is something which will probably be at the very end of it. It always is, but you know there is ability to get a bare bones uh, deal done by December 2020, which is the so-called end of the transition period, which Boris Johnson and just announced today that he's going to make sure is stuck to. That right. is meaningless because he can actually introduce a bill a, a month beforehand and extend it. But it's just a, a signal. That's all it is. Yep. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your commentary. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering European markets, giving us his thoughts uh, on the ongoing Brexit uh, issue, which uh, clearly is coming to a head here. You can read more on this and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion and on the terminal by typing O-P-I-N ghost. One consistent theme throughout the past few years has been the incredible rush of cash into private markets of all site, uh, of all sorts, private equity, private debt, uh, and the convergence of those two sectors in particular has led to a boom in mergers and acquisitions and buyouts within the middle market sector in particular. And luckily for us, we have somebody who knows a lot about that. Karen Davies joining us here in our interactive broker studios, private equity managing director and group head at Huntington National Bank, and usually. Uh, in Cleveland, but today here in our 1130 studios. Karen, I want to just get a sense of 2019, deal count a little lower, uh, valuations very high. What's your big takeaway? So I think 2019 has been um, basically on pace with what 2018 was. If you look at the total value of deals, I think the number is we, you know, we should end up in the fourth quarter very close to $2 trillion of M&A again. Um, that's the same number that was done in 2018. The deal count, as you had mentioned, um, was a little off, a little lighter, but very large mega deals that got done. So the deal value was very high in the third quarter. And so we've seen that trend that the deal values are higher. The multiples are still elevated. Um, I kind of think that's the new norm. I think that's the new norm with that much capital available in the market, you know, re- related to um, in the banks having uh, capital available, the capital markets having capital, sovereign wealth funds coming in, trillion dollars of dry powder on the private equity side. I, I think that those valuations are going to continue to hold. So one of the things that Lisa and I have noticed that, as she mentioned, there's just so much money coming into the private equity business over the years, and it seems like every big firm is raising just gajillion dollar funds. But you, you're the one that actually has to put senior debt on these deals. You're taking a lot of risk. Are you concerned? Are you seeing some of your private equity clients maybe doing deals in the last year or two that maybe they would not have done four or five years ago? 
Well, I think I think that they're still um, using really good discipline. I think that their investment thesis work is is, is very solid. Um, I don't necessarily see them taking more risk that they wouldn't have taken before, but they're paying more for it, right? So if it's a good asset um, and they've done their diligence, they will pay up in valuation. Uh, we sort of hold steady on the line in terms of how much senior leverage we're going to put out. Really, it's the, the, the differential is coming from them. It's coming from the equity check that they're writing. So what used to be maybe 35 40% back in the day, equity is now 50 60% equity to get a deal done when you're paying 12 times. Right, and this is something that people have actually been talking about as something giving them confidence in the private debt world that there is that huge equity cushion right. underpinning that there is a concern what if the whole thing's a house of cards and the valuation <laughs> is ridiculous to begin with and the business model is unsound I mean are you seeing anything that uh, reeks of that uh, I would say not not yet but uh, you're you're as a lender you are very selective uh, in terms of where you put your dollars to work and and, and I think you're seeing the need to partner with the right private equity firms who have really good track records, who have an investment thesis that is sound. They have operating partners who know those industries versus sort of being a tourist, if you will. You know, I'm going to write a big check out of my private equity fund into a line of business that I know nothing about. And then I'm going to go ahead and line it up with a senior debt provider who maybe has no expertise or special specialization in that lending of that sector. That, that, that is sort of a dangerous combination. So in the middle markets where you focus, your team focuses, what industries or sectors are you seeing the most activity right now? So we have a decent amount um, of healthcare-related businesses, uh, not just uh, private equity-owned, but pri- privately owned at Huntington Bank through the middle market footprint that we serve. So healthcare, um, some consumer good, retail, uh, pretty select there in terms of you better have a good e-commerce platform. We're starting to see a little bit more automotive aftermarket transactions coming to market because those would probably be cycle resilient to some extent. And then it's just pretty consistent business to business and, you know, just your basic manufacturing in the Midwest where we sit in Huntington, we see those companies, you know, trying to convert wealth, right? Sell the business, get ahead of a cycle and do it now. So are you seeing more buyouts, more mergers, more acquisitions? What's the goal other than just cashing out? Uh, well, it, it depends who you ask, right? So the goal is private equity has way too much dry powder on their hands, and they got to put it to work, and their GPs are screaming. Well, right? but but this but this is this is not great, right? That's no, not a great reason. That's to do not it. a good reason no. to do it. Um, you also have a lot of privately held businesses in terms of if you go out and look at the uh, generational ownership, who have said when you do these surveys, we are absolutely inquisitive. We're acquisitive. We're looking to sell. We're looking to take chips off the table. I need to transition wealth. I don't have a third gen coming in and I don't want to ride this business through the cycle. So, you know, I think there's some, there's a confluence of issues coming. You've got too much capital. You've got a lot of people trying to sell. It's almost like, I think there was an article written that, you know, everything in America was for sale. (laughs) So if you read that, it's a little, it's a little (laughs) scary. (laughs) Exactly. So in your markets, like, you know, when I was in the bank, banking world, was a question of how much of a, a loan would we keep on our books versus syndicate out? Yeah. How are the deals getting done now? Because if I were a commercial lender in these deals, I'd be concerned. I'm towards the end of the economic yeah. cycle. I've got buyers spending, you know, big multiples, maybe a little bit higher than I'm comfortable with. Sure. I'd want to sell down as much as I can. What are you finding in the middle market in the credit side? Well, interestingly enough, the the middle market syndicated uh, lending um, space right now is is way down in terms of where where we used to be in terms of volume because of the direct lenders doing the whole deal. Okay. Right, they're coming in and doing the whole deal. There still are customers who really value that senior sub sort of transaction, um, and I think that the syndicate market, when we agent transactions, is a very appropriate 
uh, tool to use to uh, manage risk. Right. And, and in your book or any lender's book, you should have diversity in your book. And that's what you use syndicated lending for is to, is to diversify. And so I think it's a tool that you we got to continue to use, but it's certainly a competitive situation right. when you have one lender willing yep. to do the whole thing. Exactly. Karen Davies, thank you so much for joining us. Karen Davies, Private Equity Managing Director and Group Head at Huntington National Bank based in Cleveland, but joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, giving us a rundown on the M&A environment, particularly for a mid-market M&A. Uh, as Karen mentioned, uh, another good year for M&A, broadly speaking, maybe $2 trillion uh, worth of deals in 2019. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.